it's good to see you this morning. I hope you had a good week. We've had such beautiful weather, and then today, <laughs> what a blessing. That's okay. You know, one thing I've learned about, uh, about living in Virginia is the reason it's so green is because we actually do get rain. Uh, I lived in California for a while because for a little while I thought the grass was greener over there. <laughs> Turns out the grass is brown over there. It never rains. So uh, I am thankful for the rain because it's what turns everything green. So we've been talking in the book of Galatians. If you have your little book, go ahead and turn to page number 18. We're in chapter 5 today. The last couple of weeks, Pastor Jonathan has done a tremendous job of going through chapters 1 and 2, and then last week, chapters 3 and 4. But before we dive in, let me just kind of start this way. I know, as a Virginian, you are well aware of your not just state's history, but of American history. And of course, one of the bloodiest times in the history of America was the Civil War. A little over 2% of our entire population at that time was killed in the Civil War. The sad thing about the Civil War is that we had brothers literally fighting against brothers. And at the heart of the issue, the whole thing, was this issue of slavery. And of course, you remember what happened on April 9th, 1865, just about 19 miles from here, in a, little, in a little house owned by Wilmer McLean, the Union Army had surrounded the Confederate Army and General Lee was forced to surrender. He didn't want to. In fact, as early as that morning, he was still trying to figure out a way to escape with his army, but he was unable to because all of his routes were blocked. And so he surrendered at that little courthouse right there just a few miles from this building on April 9th, 1865. It was a short little meeting, a little small talk between him and General Grant, and then General Grant handed him a five-sentence letter that sort of outlined the articles of surrender, and General Lee responded with a three-sentence little letter that accepted them. It's a very famous moment. You can go over there even this afternoon and see that little house where all this took place. But at the very heart of it all was this issue of slavery. But there's still going a civil war going on even now, isn't there? And it's not necessarily in our country, although we do bicker and fight about a lot of issues. The civil war I want to talk to you about today is the civil war that's going on inside of your own heart. It's a spiritual matter. And at the very heart of it all is the issue of slavery. Will we be a slave to the law? Will we be a slave to sin? Or will we be set free from all of that and live in victory? That's the issue in the book of Galatians. It's the great charter of Christian freedom that some uh, theologians have called it. And you can divide this book into three different categories. We've heard about the first two already over the last few weeks. The first two chapters of Galatians are really Paul defending his integrity as an apostle. Paul tells his testimony about his conversion. Paul attacks the ones who are perverting the gospel, these people known as the Judaizers who want to come in and, and say, yes, the gospel of Jesus is what you need, but oh, but you also need this, right? We've been talking about that for two weeks. And then last week, Pastor Jonathan went through chapters three and four, where we go from now a personal testimony really to just building this doctrinal mountain of truth. And at the very end of chapter four, 
Paul paints for us this wonderful picture about the covenant that God made with, Mo, with Abraham, the, the covenant of promise, where he promises that through the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus would come and deliver us from the curse, the bondage of the law. And because of our faith in him, we can be justified by him because of his grace, right? So that's what we talked about last week. Now, we go from a personal testimony in chapters one and two to the building of doctrine in the chapters 3 and 4. And now in chapter 5, we, we get a little more practical. Paul says, okay, so now that I've given you all this, what are you going to do with it? And that's why when we get to verse 1, he starts with the words, therefore. But before you go there, I just want to review for you a few little terms that you've been hearing on and throughout this entire uh, book of Galatians. It's important that we understand what these words mean so that way when you do read Galatians 5 and 6 and as you go back and read the entire book you're fully understanding what this stuff is. So let me just give you a few little terms that you've heard over and over again and I want to make sure you know the meaning of them. First of all the law. What is the law? Well the, the law is God's standard of righteousness. We see it in the Old Testament. God gave Moses this Mosaic law. It included the great commandments, of course, the Ten Commandments, right? And those Ten Commandments are really, um, you, can, you can almost wrap all 613 commandments in the law around those top ten because they all have something to do with those top ten. And so those Ten Commandments are really the basis of the law of God. And the problem is, when you really start breaking down what all those Ten Commandments mean, there's not a single human being that's ever lived or ever will live that can stand up to the constraints or the burden of that law. So the law is God's standard of righteousness. It was given to Moses out of necessity. Uh, it, was a, it was a rigid and unforgiving standard of rules by which mankind was to live. And under the law, unfortunately, because none of us can really keep it, we are condemned. But there's another word that Paul keeps using in this book, and it's the word of grace. Now, I know that you all, we all use the word grace all the time. I just want to make sure you know exactly what we're talking about. One, one theologian put it this way. It's a, as an acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense. But it's a, little, it's a little more than that. You see, it's the undeserved and unmerited favor of God. It's not just avoiding the punishment that we do deserve. That's called mercy. But it goes beyond mercy. It's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's avoiding the punishment we do deserve, but it's also receiving the gift of salvation that we don't deserve. Grace is given. It cannot be earned. And under God's grace, you are not condemned. So under the law, you are condemned. Under God's grace, you are not condemned. Now, there's a third term we've heard over and over again. It's called justification. Justification is the act of God whereby we who are sinners and deserve a just punishment are looked upon as righteous through the eyes of God, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, he conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. We are viewed as righteous in the eyes of a just and holy God. And so it's just as if I'd never sinned. Now that's a pretty awesome thing right there because we're all sinners. We've all come short of the glory of God. Raise your hand if you're a sinner. Okay, see, yeah. If you didn't raise your hand, you're a liar, so now you're in the same camp, right? <laughs> Here we are, we're all sinners. 
But because of our faith, God has justified us through his eyes, not because he sees us as pure, but because he sees us through the blood of his son, Jesus, who is pure. So it's a wonderful thing to be justified by what? Faith. One more term I want to make sure you understand. Faith. Faith is believing in something and committing to that belief. Faith is belief that God is who he says he is, that Jesus is truly the only way to salvation. But it's not just belief, it's commitment too. It's a firm belief in the existence of God, but also in the salvation that only comes from God through his son, Jesus. Now let me give you one more word, and this is where we're going to dive into chapter 5. The word freedom. Freedom is the state of being set loose from the power or the control of something or someone else. To be in a position of liberty means you are exempt from slavery and the confinement, and in this case, the confinement of sin. So we have these words, law, grace, justification, faith, and now freedom. Now, with that in mind, let's dive into what this freedom really looks like. Look at Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. And the first point I have for you today is simply this. You are free. In fact, you should just say that with me. I am free. Just say it. Ready? I am free. That just feels good to say that, doesn't that? Now look at verse 1. Verse 1 says this. Paul says, stand fast, therefore. He uses the word therefore because it's in response to what he was just talking about with the Abraham covenant, that God's plan came through the justification of our faith. And because of all that, Stand, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. I love the name of our college next door, Liberty University. It says it all, doesn't it? By which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with this yoke of bondage. How many of you know what a yoke is? And I don't mean Y-O-L-K. That comes from an egg. This is Y-O-K-E. Y-O-K-E means a yoke. It's, it it was, is what they used to tie the oxen together as they would plow their fields. And it would, it would keep these oxen from the freedom to move. That's what a yoke looks like. So it ties these oxen together. It restricts their movement. What Paul is telling us, and using that as an example, he's telling the Galatians and us that they are no longer, you no longer have to be tied to the yoke of bondage that comes from the burden of trying to gain God's favor by keeping every letter of the law. It's impossible. It cannot be done. But rather, your salvation in Christ has granted you freedom from that burden, not because of anything you could do, but because of what Christ has done. But all freedom comes with some restrictions. It starts way back at the beginning of time. What happened in Genesis chapter 2? What did God tell Adam and Eve? He said, this whole garden, you can eat freely from any tree you want except one. And of course, we know what happened. They went to the one, right? But they started off so free. They have all this land, all this fruit, all this vegetation. Everything is completely free for the taking. All he asks is that you don't go to that one tree and eat from it. If you do, you'll be cursed. And what happened? Well, because of the temptation of the evil one, and because mankind is weak in our nature, Sin came into being because they went to the one tree they couldn't eat from. 
So freedom, even in Genesis chapter 2, starts with just a little bit of restriction. Now, you and I live in a free country, don't we? And aren't you thankful we live in the greatest country on the planet, even to this day? We got our problems, but listen, I'd still rather live here than any other nation on the planet, right? So we live in a free country, but I'm not free to just do anything I want. I still have restrictions and laws by which I must live, right? And they're placed there so that I can live peaceably and safely around my fellow citizens if they'll follow the law as well. So I'm free to live where I want to live. I'm free to go where I want to go. I'm free to drive where I want to drive. I'm free to worship whoever or whatever I want to worship. I'm free to work wherever I want to work, but I'm not free to go cheat on my taxes or blow up my neighbor's house or run over somebody in the parking lot. I'm restricted by certain laws and they're for my benefit and for the benefit of our society. Freedom without restrictions leads to recklessness. But under the grace of God, freedom with restrictions leads to righteousness. So boundaries are a must. We have to have them. The same principle applies to what I eat. I went to the grocery store this morning, stopped into Food Line at about 7.30, and I went in there to get some grapes, which we're going to use here at the end of this message. But as I was passing on my way to the grapes, I ran into these little suckers. I really like these. And I was like, hey, maybe I should get some of those too. This is why my wife doesn't send me to the grocery store. She'll give me like a list of four things, and I'll get like 30 other things that just really look good, right? <laughs> so I, I, uh, it's just what I do. And I happened to have pass these cookies, and they looked really good. So I spent an extra five bucks and got the cookies. And I got to thinking about it. You know, restrictions has to do what I eat with what I eat too. Because even though I got some grapes that are pretty good for you, um, these right here, they're not really good for me. But I really like, in fact, I have the proclivity in my life that I would really much rather have the cookies than the grapes. I was at a banquet last night. It seems to be gala season all over town. We got galas or gay, I don't know how you say it, but they're happening everywhere. And so I was at one last night and they delivered for us this entire plate full of chocolate eclairs and cheesecake, little bites of cheesecake. It was a whole plate of it. And the lady hands it to me and I was like, is this just mine? Because, you know, she's like, no, it's for the whole table, silly. I said, oh, okay, well, um, so I, and I partook of a few pieces of cheesecake and I was so happy because I like that so much more than the crunchy green beans to my left that seems like are present at every banquet ever in all of history. I don't know what it is with the crunchy green beans, but I just, I'm not a big fan of crunchy green beans. And here's the thing. I would love to just spend my whole meal eating that cheesecake. And you know what? I have the freedom to do so. And I have the freedom to get up tomorrow morning and eat nothing but cheesecake. And for lunch, have nothing but cheesecake. And for dinner, have nothing but cheesecake. And I can do that every day of my life if I want to. I'm free to do so. But the problem with that is that with one restriction, if I misuse it, now it's going to take away another freedom that I really enjoy, like golf. Because you see, if I live my life eating nothing but cheesecake, eventually it's going to take its toll on my body and I'm gonna be very unhealthy. And because I'm very unhealthy, now I've got other freedoms that I used to enjoy that I can't enjoy anymore because I've ruined my body enjoying and abusing another freedom, you see. So all freedom comes with restrictions. And I restrict one freedom 
so I can enjoy a greater freedom down the road, right? It's called boundaries. And when I operate within those boundaries, my life is full and I'm able to enjoy all my freedoms. But freedom doesn't just come with some restrictions, it also comes with responsibility. And if I'm going to restrict what I do in order to enjoy a greater freedom, then I also need to be responsible in how I do that. I'm responsible for staying within those boundaries. And I just need to tell you this. You need to remember, as you operate within your freedoms, that you are ridiculously in charge of your life. That's a friend of mine quote, Lance Witt. You are the one who gets to make the choice. I have decided to eat cheesecake. I have decided to follow Jesus or not to follow Jesus. So in a sense, we are all still slaves to something. The question is, who or what are we slaves to? And Paul reminds us that in Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin or to the law. And he told us that in chapter four, verse seven, you are no longer a slave, but a son or an heir of God through Christ. Now, when you start looking at your life as being an heir, as being part of the kingdom of God, and you're one of the king's kids, it'll change how you think. It'll change the decisions you make. So what did Jesus say about yokes? Well, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 20, 28 through 30, Jesus says this, come to me, all who, you, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, my yoke, and learn from me. And I am gentle and lowly and hard, and you'll find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Notice he doesn't say there is no yoke. No, no, there is a yoke in your livelihood as a Christian, but it's not burdensome, it's light. Do you know why? Because the Christian existence is not about a bunch of things that you're not supposed to do. Let me ease your mind on something as a Christian, as a believer, as an heir to the throne. Here's how you need to look at your Christian life. It's not a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's just big, two big do's and one big done. Here are the do's. Do love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then do love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because it was already done for you on the cross. All the burden. Colossians 2.14. Jesus canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. So all you really need to concentrate on are the two big do's because of the one big done. You got it? Keep that in mind as we keep going through this. The work has already been done. Now all he asks is that we love him with our whole heart, serve him, and through that we love our neighbors. Now that's easier said than done, isn't it? We tend to find it easier to love ones who are more like us, who live like us, who vote like us, who dress like us, who share the similar values as us. And as a result, we lean towards this legalistic mindset when encountering people who aren't like us, right? And this is the proclivity of people who are raised in church like I was. I was a Baptist nine months before I was born. That's all I knew was church, 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 church. And when I was in high school, I started going to this great church. It was a tremendous church. But within there was a faction of believers who were really legalistic. 
And I jumped kind of into that group. And my high school years were really strange. I wasn't your typical teenager that, you know, maybe went to a few parties I shouldn't have or drank a few things I shouldn't have or did a few things. No, I was just the opposite. I was really, really, really straight and narrow. So much so that I was kind of a big prideful jerk. I remember one particular occasion, there was this kid named Linwood. He was one of our cheerleaders, and we had a national championship cheerleading team in our school. And I'll never forget one time I ran into this kid, and, uh, and I could tell that he'd been up to something that he shouldn't have been. And I, I literally grabbed his car keys from him, opened up his trunk, and he had beer in his trunk. And I took the beer, and I threw it on the ground and smashed everyone, just push everything. I was like, I can't believe I'm doing this. But I'm, and, and he was in tears. And, you know, he's all upset. Now, should he have been drinking? No. No, he shouldn't have been. He shouldn't have been going to the parties and stuff that he was doing. No, he shouldn't have been. But, man, the way I handled that, do you know I haven't seen him since that night? And I'm pretty sure that all he thinks about me is, wow, he was pretty mean. He's kind of a jerk. I could have handled that situation a lot different. And there's a whole lot of situations like that in high school that I could give you over and over story, story after story about the way I just mistreated and was rude and downright prideful. And here's the thing. I was doing that because I was kind of, I felt like I was supposed to be the moral police for everybody. Some of you are just the same way. You were policing everybody online, telling them what they're wrong about, what they shouldn't be doing, blah, 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 you know? I was the moral police. And because of that, I came, I, I really got very prideful spiritually. And here's the worst part. My motivation for fixing people was not because I loved them. It was because the more I fixed people, the better I looked in my own eyes. So everything I was doing was for myself, although I would tell everybody it was for God. You see the difference? I was motivated by self, not by love. Can I just tell you something? True liberty never gravitates towards legalism. Whew, well that was the first verse. Verses 2 through 4, indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, God will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. In other words, look, if, you're gonna th if you think that this little thing called circumcision is going to be what changes you or what gives you the right to call yourself saved, then you're missing the whole point. Now, if you think that one little law is going uh, is, is to be required, then you might as well just make the entire law required because Paul's saying... If, 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 you don't need to do that because when you do, you become estranged from Christ, verse 4. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Now that term, fallen from grace, does it mean we lose our salvation? No, that's not what he's talking about. He doesn't say that they've lost their salvation. He's saying that because they have chosen the burden of the law on this legalistic lifestyle, that they're turning their backs to the benefits of God's grace. Jesus didn't pay the ultimate price for your sins so that he could offer you this free grace only to take it back again if you mess up one too many times. And aren't you thankful that he doesn't? If he did, it wouldn't be grace at all. It wouldn't even be a gift. It, wouldn't, it would simply be a, a borrowed blessing that he let you hold on for a while, like dangling a little carrot out in front of you. Here you go. Here's a little home in heaven. Oh, uh, you lied too many times. That's not what Jesus is doing with grace. But grace plus anything undermines the very essence of grace itself. You heard this verse last week. 
Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So if you base your salvation on anything other than Jesus, only Jesus, then you base it on something you have done which is simply impossible because you can do nothing to earn your salvation. Don't sing the prayer and the hymn of the legalist. I wrote this a couple years back. I kind of like it. This is the legalist hymn. Amazing grace. I like the sound of getting something free. I once was lost, but then I found salvation's up to me. How about the last verse? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, I'll know I'm there in part because of works that I have done. Wrong-o. You can't do anything to earn your salvation. Here's the other good news. Because you can't do anything to earn it, there's no accomplishment that you can achieve to make him love you anymore. And there's no sin you can commit to make him love you any less. You are his child. Find freedom in that. You are free. Why? Number two, you're free because of faith. Look at verse 5, for we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. Remember who you are in Christ today. You are an heir. You are his child because you have placed your faith in him. And there's no outward act of the flesh that gives you that position. Your standing in Christ is based off of a spiritual position, not a physical one. And by the way, that position was bought and paid for by Jesus. So your good works, no matter how good they are, are a result of your faith. They are not a substitute for your faith. Do you see the difference? You are free because of faith. Point number three, your faith is expressed in who you love. Number one, you are free. Number two, you are free because of your faith. Number three, your faith is expressed in who you love. Now, we already went over this once. Who are we supposed to love? God and people, right? So your love energizes your faith. I love what Charles Swindoll said. He said, faith and love are inseparable essentials in a truly base, uh, grace-based, spirit-empowered life. Faith and love, they're like this. So remember the two big do's, love God and love people, because your faith is expressed or fleshed out in how you do that, right? And then verses 7 through 11, Paul just kind of goes on a little tangent here about these people who are teaching false doctrine. And he warns about the entire, uh, the, 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 the horrible things that come from teaching false doctrine. And one of them is that a little leaven in verse 9 leavens the whole lump. In other words, you start believing this stuff and it just kind of snowballs. And suddenly you got a whole bunch of people that are believing this stuff. And eventually it hinders the work of the church. So then he gets down to verse 13 and he says, for you, brethren, you've been called to liberty. Don't live like this anymore. Only, and here's where he flips to the other side, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. True spiritual freedom, people, means that we submit our own desires to that which is best for others. What did Paul say in, in 1 Corinthians? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful for me. In other words, there are some, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. 
So how I live and what I do really does matter as a believer because it's about who I'm trying to love. Which brings me to my last point. Your love is expressed in how you live. So you're free. You're free because of your faith. Your faith is fleshed out or expressed in who you love, but your love is expressed in how you live. How many remember that great hymn from the 70s, from the Rolling Stones? (laughs) I'm free to do what I want. You remember that song? Can I just give an answer to that? No, you're not. No, you're not. You're not free to do whatever you want. Because you see, under Christ, he changes your want-tos. And so you, you have your own boundaries that are set forth in the word of God to live within those boundaries, but in the context of those boundaries, you're living in total freedom. Now here's what happens. It's a, I picture like this giant pendulum that's just sort of hanging from a ceiling somewhere. And what happens is, 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 is you got a, a one believer who's, who's, like, who's like living in, in legalism, right? And, 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 and it, it kind of like me in high school, I was, I was really leaning towards legalism. I was raised in church. All I knew was that. And, and then what happened is, is, is that when I left and went to college, God freed me of a bunch of that stuff. And I kind of got freed up. But here's what happens to a lot of people that get freed up from legalism. What happens is that pendulum begins to swing. And if you're not careful, Satan will use that pendulum to just swing right on by liberty and right into license. See that? And that's what happens. And same with the other side. Some people are really more prone to living a life of total freedom and and abusing the license that God gives them. And what happens is that God will convict them of that. But in their conviction, Satan will use that and he'll swing you right past liberty and into legalism. Because every one of us lean towards one side or the other. And what Satan would love for us to do is to lean heavily towards one side. And the last thing he wants us to do is to live in freedom. So there's these three things, liberalism, legalism, liberty, and license. And like a pendulum, we're all prone to swing towards one side or the other. Now listen really closely. Those who practice legalism undermine the grace of God. The pendulum swings toward our pride. Those who practice license cheapen the grace of God. The pendulum swings toward pleasure. Ah, but those who live in liberty embrace the grace of God. The pendulum lands in the middle, in the center of his purpose. True liberty does not gravitate towards legalism, but also liberty does not grant us license to sin. Nowhere in Scripture do you find that tension more evident than in John chapter 8. I wish we had time to go there because it's the story of the lady that Jesus, that, that, that the Pharisees bring to Jesus. She's been caught in the act of adultery. And in one, just one brief little moment, Jesus reminds the Pharisees that they're missing the point of grace because they're blinded by their own pride. And then he turns and shows the woman that she missed the point of grace because she's blinded by her own search for pleasure. And in this one little tiny moment in history, he condemns legalism shows grace, and then what does he tell the lady? Remember what he told the lady? He says, where'd, y'all, where'd all the, where'd the people who condemn you, where'd they go? They've all left. 
Why? Because they realize that in their legalism, they realize that, oh man, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I can't cast the first stone either because there's sin in my life as well. And so they all leave, right? And then he's like, where are the condemners going? And she said, they're gone. He said, well, in that case, I don't condemn you either. Now go and throw a party and have a great time. No, that's not what he says. He says, go and sin no more. Boundaries. Convictions. So when we abuse the grace of God, we cheapen the grace of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorite theologians, said it this way. Cheap grace is the grace that we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus, living and incarnate, and I might add, grace with no conviction. So why now? How do we deal with this? We got law, we got grace, we got legalism, we got license. What are we supposed to do with all this, Charles? Well, I'm glad you asked. For the next hour and a half, I'm going to explain to you. I'm just kidding. Let me just give you a few little things to think about. Chew on this for a minute. What is the secret to living in freedom? Well, Paul gives it to us right here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. I say then, walk. That's the Greek word peripateo. It means to keep on walking. It's a present tense word. It means, hey, as you're going, keep on going. As you walk, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. You can see that conflict very vividly in Romans chapter 7 where Paul is like, look, the things I want to do, I, I don't do. And the things I shouldn't do, I do do. <laughs> that didn't sound right, but that's what I'm, it's exactly what he's saying. I, I, I'm doing the things I don't want to do. And then the things I should do, I, I, I don't do. And it's a conflict. Here's the great news for all of us. You're going to live in that tension every day of your life. How's that for some good news? You just are. Because you have an old nature, and then you have the nature that Christ has brought into you through the Holy Spirit of God, right? But here's the key, verse 18. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And when you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, he begins to fix the way you walk. You know, it's amazing how many times Paul refers to the Christian, uh, Christian example of the Christian life as a walk, Many, many times, Ephesians 4, 2, and 3, walk in humility. Romans 13, walk in purity. 1 Corinthians 7, walk in contentment. And on and on and on. He pictures the Christian life as a walk in a certain direction. So the key to living free is to walk in the Spirit, right? So how do you walk in the Spirit? Well, let me give you a few pointers. First of all, it's daily, not weekly. It's an everyday crucifixion. Did you hear what I said in that baptism when, that, when uh, <laughs> uh, our friend Kim, she said, I said, so you, you, you rededicated your life? She goes, oh, every day. I love that spirit because it is an everyday crucifixion. Paul put it this way. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter nine. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. It's an everyday crucifixion. That's why I have a few crosses laid around my house. 
Jesus isn't on the cross. He conquered sin, death, and hell in the grave. So I don't have any crosses with Jesus on them. But every once in a while, I just look at a cross as a reminder that every day is a crucifixion. Every day I need to crucify myself to Christ. So it's a daily thing, not a weekly thing. You can't just come in here on Sunday morning and expect everything to be just hunky-dory because Monday morning, all kinds of stuff hits the fan and then you have to start all over again, don't you? So it's daily, not weekly. Number two, it's a walk, it's not a race. It's a long obedience in the same direction. So every day, stay close. Every day, stay clean. Thirdly, it's constant. It's not casual. Christianity is not a part-time lifestyle. It's an ongoing relationship as an heir to the kingdom. Prince William doesn't get to take a day off of being the prince of England. He just is, right? It's who he is. You are who you are, a child of the king. You have been made a joint heir because of his grace. So live like it. Now, as we reach the end of this chapter, Paul then gives us this list of what are the works of the flesh. He says it's real obvious when people are living in the flesh. Things like adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery. He gives us a list of 17 things here. And you can divide them into four categories, sexual sin, religious sin, social sin, and personal sin. He gives us a long list. And if you're looking at that list right now and you don't see your favorite sin, don't worry, it's probably on another list. I was noticing earlier today, I was like, oh, it doesn't say gluttony. So people in here might think that gluttony is okay. Well, no, it's on some other list. Uh, Oh, gossip's not mentioned here. No, but dissensions sure are. See what I'm saying? I mean, you you can divide. And here's the thing. What Paul is saying here is that there's this civil war going on in your soul and the flesh is wanting you to participate in these things. It's an issue of slavery. So if you're gonna become a slave to these things, which by the way, most people who don't know the Lord are, and then he says, if you are living this way and it's a habitual practice, there's a good chance you're not gonna inherit the kingdom of God because people who know Jesus don't live like this. It's just that simple. So the people who do know the Lord, the people who do walk in the Spirit, the people who have been saved by His grace, well, he gives us an example of how they live in Galatians 5, 22. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit, notice he doesn't say fruits, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such, there is no law. You know what I love about that phrase? It's because that's true not, even, not only in the kingdom of God, but across any land in the world. You can't find any laws in any nation that are against people who have joy, that are peop- against people who have peace, against kindness, against good. There's no such law against these things. These are the marks of the believer. These are the fruit which come from a believer. And what does he say in verse 24? And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live in the spirit, then we need to walk in the spirit. So we don't become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another, fighting with one another, bickering with one another. No, because if you're walking in the spirit, you're going to have this fruit. Now here's the thing. If the secret to freedom is to walk in the Spirit, then there's a secret to walking in the Spirit. And you'll find it 
in John chapter 15. But before we get there, can I just give you a few little things about fruit? First of all, fruit is always visible. You can't, there's no such thing as an invisible grape. You're, it, it's just, you, you can't deny it's right here. And it's the same true with you. If, if you're a believer, then people are going to know it. Secondly, fruit is always consistent with the plant from which it was produced. It bears the character of the tree or the vine from which it is a part. Apple trees produce apples. Apples don't grow on orange trees because it's the nature of the apple tree to produce apples. And the nature of the tree defines the makeup of the fruit, right? Thirdly, fruit does not exist for itself. Fruit, this, this grapes right here, these were made for me to eat them. And I'm going to. But if I don't eat them, eventually they're going to rot and begin to eat away at themselves. Your life in Christ is meant for loving and serving others. Lastly, fruit doesn't try to be anything that it's not. It just is. These grapes right here, they're not trying to be an orange. They're just being grapes. Why? Are they trying? They don't seem to be trying very hard. They're just hanging out, hanging out on the vine, just being grapes. And that's the very point that Jesus makes to us as the secret to being the fruit, as the secret to walking in the Spirit. John chapter 15, Jesus said it so well. Abide in me and I in you. Just as the branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. The reason I chose these grapes is because you can clearly see that they're connected to a vine. And these little branches are where the grapes hang from, right? But if you separate this grape from the branch, now it's no longer connected to the vine and eventually this grape will just rot and go away if I don't eat it, right? Because you see, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him will produce much fruit. Because, Jesus says, you can do nothing without me. So Jesus plus nothing still equals everything. Me plus everything equals nothing. So why do so many of us struggle to live a consistent Christian life, to walk in the Spirit? I'll tell you quite simply, because we get disconnected from the vine. We don't abide in Christ. So can I just encourage you to do something? Stay plugged in. Stay connected. If you stay connected to Christ, your life will bear much fruit. I was standing in my kitchen the other day as I was working on this sermon, and my computer ran out of battery. So where I plug in my computer is right next to the refrigerator, and I plug in my computer, and as I'm doing that, because, you know, the battery goes down in the computer, right? As I'm doing that as a temporary solution to recharge my battery, I noticed that the refrigerator started making this weird noise, something like, <coughs> it wasn't very pleasant. And it dawned on me right then and there that that's a beautiful picture of what I'm trying to explain to you. Most of us look at our Christian life like we charge our computers. We show up here on Sunday morning just to kind of get plugged in and to get recharged and we think that's gonna do the trick. And by Friday, we're all living like we always did. Don't think of your Christian life as plugging in your computer for a temporary charge. No, 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 no. Look at your Christian existence like that refrigerator. 
I never unplug my refrigerator, and neither do you. You know why? Because if you did, the food rots. Your responsibility as a believer is to always constantly stay connected to the vine. If you do, you're going to learn how to walk in the Spirit. And if you walk in the Spirit, you're going to be free. And he who has been set free by the Son is free indeed. Will you bow your heads? Maybe you're here today and you're struggling with walking in freedom. You don't know what it is to really know the Spirit of God because you've never experienced what His love can do for you. If you need to meet Christ today, folks, and learn what real freedom is, to be set free from the sin and the pain and the shame of your past, let him save you today. All you have to do is come down this aisle when we start this music and just simply take one of our pastors by the hand and say, look, I'm looking for freedom. I want freedom in Christ. And we would love to explain to you how he can come into your life and save you. But my guess is in this room, there's a whole lot of believers here and you live your life either leaning way to the side of legalism or way to the abuse of your license that God has given you. Which side are you leaning on? The pendulum has probably swung which way or another. Maybe it's time to just come down to the altar and make things right and let God set you free all over again. So that when you leave here today, you're leaving in full liberty, living for Christ, walking in the Spirit, bearing fruit in your life because you're free. I don't know where you're at today, only you do. But as we begin to sing this little song that we sang earlier, Christ is enough, will you just ask the Lord to speak to you? And if you feel compelled to come to the front and pray, then come on. If you feel compelled to come and take one of these pastors by the hand and talk to them, then come on. That's what this moment's for. Let's stand together, sing that little chorus. Enough for me, Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in you. Everything I need. Oh, Christ is enough for me. Christ. Christ has given you. God bless you. Have a great week, everybody. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We're so glad you joined us. If you prayed to receive Christ today, we'd love to hear from you. We want to help you as you begin this new journey of faith in Jesus Christ. Send an email to the address on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. Likewise, if you've never accepted God's free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you'd like to know more, 
we're here to help you. Just reach out to us and we'd love to tell you more. Our mission at Thomas Road is to change our world by developing Christ followers who love God and love people. If you'd like to help us fulfill that mission by giving to our ministry, go to the link on your screen and make your contribution today. Help us help others with the life-changing truth of God's love. Thank you.